the stakes are high in the ongoing debate over the future of U.S. domestic policy, more specifically funding what some have described as the largest social program proposed since FDR's New Deal. Central to this is the debate over the Build Back Better Act, a $3.5 trillion deal that is still making its way through Congress. U.S. President Joe Biden has said the U.S. is at an inflection point and that this investment is needed now. But conservative Democrats like Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, want they, he wants to cut the proposed uh, figure for the Build Back Better Act in half actually less than half. However, progressive Democrats like Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont have expressed opposition to this, pointing out that there's a desperate need for poverty alleviation and infrastructure development throughout the country. And furthermore, there is another battle. The debt ceiling battle on Capitol Hill is being waged with Senate GOP leaders doubling down on their opposition to raising or suspending the debt limit. On Tuesday, September 21st, House Democrats unveiled a bill to suspend the debt limit until after the 2022 midterm elections. While the measure is expected to pass the House, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is pressing his caucus to vote down the measure when it comes to the upper chamber. Let's go to a short clip now from uh, CNN uh, related to funding uh, Biden's what he's calling his care economy proposal. Facing Democratic opposition at home and blowback from allies abroad, President Biden departing the White House today as he grapples with one of the most consequential weeks of his first year in office. I think the president's view, having been on the world scene for 50 years, is that you always have to work on your relationships. Back in Washington, his legislative agenda hangs in the balance. Right now, what we are doing is we are engaging with the House and the Senate. It is a complicated proposal. With no agreement on a path forward between moderates and progressives, imperiling his $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill and his $3.5 trillion expansion of the social safety net. Biden said to ramp up his push to bridge the gap with meetings and calls this week, officials say. I think we'll get there. Uh, it's going to take some work, and we are going to do the work. But the White House also grappling with a looming government shutdown and the threat of a catastrophic U.S. default. All righty. So let us welcome our guest. We're delighted to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, Max Wolf, who is a founding partner of Multivariate, which provides capital markets access and data science solutions to growth companies and institutional investors. He's also a professor at the School uh, University Milano graduate program. I think that's a new school, University Milano graduate program. He appears regularly on Reuters, on CNBC, CNN, uh, BBC, NPR, Bloomberg, um, the Wall Street Journal, and the, the Financial Times, among other outlets. So, Max Wolf, welcome back. It's been way, way too long. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, honored to be with you this morning. So, uh, Max Wolf, a lot of action in Washington, D.C., so much pending um, with uh, for the Democrats in terms of the midterm elections, but also uh, President Biden's entire uh, program. But more than that, a lot of the what's being proposed in this Build Back Better deal 
as we said, um, people are saying, are contrasting it with FDR's New Deal, but Republicans are saying not so fast. This is way too much money for spending. And uh, Manchin, Senator Manchin wants half of that, and they're holding up inflation as one of the reasons that this should not happen. Uh, Max Wolf, your assessment of, of this. Yeah, so I think uh, that we should table set this a few ways. When people want to oppose whatever someone else is doing, Democrats or Republicans, they get this sudden religion about budget deficits. When they're in office, they seem to forget this, right? So last year and the previous year, the Trump administration, with the full support of the Republicans, who had no such fears, ran the largest structural budget deficits ever run on any basis by any country in the history of the world. And they probably were right to do so in the depth of the pain and suffering and dislocation and economic damage done by the early waves of Corona, right? So it's not so much by way of critique, but by way of fact. So these people have all just freshly voted for larger spending bills, creating larger deficits with no fear and no discussion of inflation and no hesitation last year. So when they then say that their only goal in life is to stop this president's budget and bring up inflation, it's not interesting. It's, it's not an interesting factual argument terribly. It's a little bit like when you have one person in the room, they're five years old, the lamp is broken, and they tell you it wasn't them. You kind of expect that. It doesn't mean they're a bad kid, but it's not a terribly interesting factual statement about what likely happened to the lamp. Right? So... I would almost think it's not worth the time of your good show and your great guests and in their morning commutes and preparations to deeply debate the validity of something that's thrown out there, just kind of see if it sticks. So there are some reasons to be worried about inflation. We've had recently pretty high numbers, about 5%, which is much above the comfort zone of about 2 to 3%. That being said, our numbers that we're getting, the macro numbers, when we like them and when we don't, are largely hard to understand. They may be meaningless, and they seem kind of temporary because everything is so uncertain, so unsettled, so hard to process because we're in somewhere in a hyped and partial recovery from a catastrophic decline associated with the coronavirus. And as much as many, especially seemingly in the Republican Party, constantly want to announce the end of the COVID period because they've so horribly and fatally mismanaged it, you know, since we've lost 700,000, at least of our armed fellow citizens now, there's an anxiousness for all parties for good reasons to, be, to have this be over. It's traumatic. And there's a particular anxiousness in the Republican Party that wants to move on to other challenges, issues, and conversations because these have not been good for that party. That being said, our haste to pretend this is over has led to tens or hundreds of thousands of needless deaths and to these surreal debates in which we discover what we do now that we're going back to normal and COVID is over. Why do I bring that up? We're not going back to normal. We will never be what we would have been without COVID. It's too big, it lasted too long, it changed things too much. So I think that's a folly as an undertaking to, to, to try to figure that out. One, two, this is very much not over. I sincerely believe it's quite likely and certainly you want to be hopeful that the worst is behind us, but that remains up to us, right? We don't know what variants and responses and masks and mandates and 
prevention of masks and prevention of mandates mean we don't know what happens to our children if they can get vaccines, how they respond. We don't know how long the vaccines that we have protect us or if they, how many of us who have not yet gotten the vaccine will get one of the ones that are available now or some variant version in the future. So unfortunately, the COVID era is today, right? And the end of COVID is exciting and anticipated and hoped for very much by all of us, I think, but we're not there yet. So I think the economic discussion has to take place and we're, we're still in a period of ongoing crisis where we have extremely limited visibility of what's coming next. But more than that, we don't know how to benchmark this because we haven't lived through anything all that much like this maybe since the Spanish flu, right, which was, you know, 103 years ago, we don't really have that similar of, of an economy or that similar of a country to where we were 103 years ago. So it's, it's, it's got some use, but it's got some limitations in how useful it is for benchmarking. In short, we're not going back to what we were like before. We're not sure when the end of what we're in comes. We know it's unusual, right? So then it becomes a question of priorities. We're going to run large budget deficits, probably not as large as we ran last year when these people all voted for it without hesitation, but we're going to run large budgets, especially when you run a large budget and the federal government is a large portion of the economy, which it needs to be and is right now. You get ideological battles because the budget becomes a statement of national priority. And the Biden administration has a statement of national priority that says we're going to ask for a little more from relatively more successful companies and more successful households in terms of more taxes. And we're going to try to do more for the folks, in many cases, who were struggling way before COVID and were hit very hard by COVID as well. That's low-income communities, communities of color, single mothers, uh, you know, people on the wrong side of various racial and inequality divides, trying to get health care, trying to get into a home, trying to be a homeowner, trying to get across the digital divide so that their children can do remote education and they can do remote shopping, et cetera, et cetera. Because I think, and I'll steal the line from, from someone else, it's not mine, COVID turned out to be a good snitch. COVID turned out to sort of tell the stories about American suffering and vulnerability that folks like you have been talking about for a long time on your show, but that it hasn't really come out into the light. Right. And uh, thank you for that, Maxwell, for really good uh, summary there. Uh, a couple of things. One, you know, this fight that's going on now about the debt ceiling and just helping our listeners to even understand what that is. But what are the implications if it is not lifted as Republicans are threatening uh, to make sure that it isn't lifted? Uh, Maxwell. Sure. So the House, right? There's two bodies here that the House has already passed a debt ceiling to raise the debt ceiling. So it's now up to the Senate, which has been, you know, less interested in helping here, to say the least, and is kind of evenly divided, whereas the House still has a small Democratic majority. Um, so the debt ceiling is that there's a statutory limit at how money, how many dollars in debt the U.S. government can be. Right. So historically, there are these rules that say, okay, if you want to go more into debt than this, and it's been a, a moving goalpost, right? If you want to go more into debt than this, um, you need a congressional, congressional act to go above it, right? And we've marched this up 
repeatedly, right? So I think right now it's about 29. Uh, I, I forgot the exact number. I can look it up, but it, it's, it's, I think, the 20-something time we've raised this, right? And so yeah. for, for a long time, we just raised it. It was a procedural thing. We exceeded the maximum tens of trillions of dollars of debt, and we just made a, a quiet vote in Congress, and the debt ceiling was lifted. I don't know how many times, 20-some. I think it was 29, but I'm not certain. And then it became political. Then it became something you could hold the other folks hostage with and get them. If you're in the opposing party in the House and Senate, you could force the other side to make some compromises pretending to care about debt. We saw this get so politicized that we actually almost defaulted on our debt um, because one of the things that's done with the money when you borrow more money is pay back your massive indebtedness, right? Because the federal government of the United States is the most indebted institution in the world and in the history of the world. And when you owe, you know, nearly $30 trillion to the rest of the world, you spend a good amount of money paying that back. Right. Um, but so this has been this political hot potato where it comes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the Republican party has been particularly good at holding various democratic uh, party agendas hostage to these debates, right? But they're fairly disingenuous in the sense that I don't think anyone believes there's a deep desire to really do anything about this. It's just a way to beat each other up. But you need the government to pass a resolution to continue to spend. Right. So raising the U.S. debt ceiling is required for the government to continue to spend money, right? Yeah. And, and, and if it doesn't, um, if it's not raised, uh, people are saying that the entire of uh, President Biden's care economy agenda is build back better plan, et cetera. You could forget about it. But just finally, finally, um, there's nothing that gets um, people who have more money than the rest Sorry, of us upset. That, that, then, yeah, I found okay, it. That, 78 then, times. We've raised this limit 78 times. 78 times. Yeah, 49 times with no debate. So, again, if you were cool with it the last 77 times, I'm a little suspicious if it's suddenly the most important moral issue in the world for you now, right? Absolutely. And and not to offer the, the kind of assistance uh, to people with paid family leave, the child extending the child tax credits, et cetera. But on the issue of, of taxes, just the, the final thing on that, because according to the Institute of Pop policy studies, the share of U.S. taxes paid by the top uh, 0.1%, 1% was just slightly higher in 2018 than in 1962, despite the more than tripling of their share of the nation's wealth. Meanwhile, the bottom 50% saw their share of U.S. wealth drop by more than half uh, during this same period. And what President Biden now, he wants to mobilize the IRS to ensure that tax laws are being uh, fairly enforced and that the rich pay their share, but also uh, just uh, taxing uh, the wealthy a, a bit more to help pay for this plan, because this $3.5 trillion, uh, the money has to come from somewhere. Your final thoughts about this flap over taxes, uh, Max Wolf? Yeah. So I don't think this is about whether $28.5 trillion in government debt or $28.5 thousand billion is meaningfully different to people than $30 trillion. I find that not credible to the point that it's barely worth our, our time. What this is about is what are our priorities and how do we fund those priorities? 
I think that while it's fun to call Joe Biden's Build Back Better proposals radical and super liberal, what I think it is is an effort to keep us from having major social unrest. And so I think having left behind the bottom 60 to 80 percent of income earners with a racial and gender bias pattern that's disturbing and familiar, this is an effort to keep everybody at least plausibly believing we can go somewhere together and we can heal the wounds of the past, including Corona. My fear is more that if we don't pass a fairly inclusive effort to reduce inequality, we'll start to have the catastrophic failure of our social cohesion and democracy that we've started to see kind of bubble up around the edges, whether that's a resurgent recent crime rates in certain areas or the January 6th attempt to have a violent overthrow of the democratic election, which I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't tend to be comfortable thinking of as a minor event. Absolutely. Well, on that note, economist Max Wolf, we know you're extremely uh, busy. A lot of folks uh, want to talk with you. So we're glad that you were able to join us and break this down for us today. Max Wolf, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.